three men who love to talk about triathlon. The strangest man in triathlon, Steve Lizard McKenna. The angry gnome, Tim Reed, and host, Cole Danny. This is Triathlon Therapy. We've all just returned from Ironman 70.3 Geelong over the weekend, and luckily we have Steve back recording this week to discuss how the race panned out. We've had numerous messages and questions come through the Insta page for Steve, so we'll run through these and get his thoughts firsthand. First question, Steve. How many watts do you think Mike Phillips was pushing to get such a large gap compared to your watts? I think it was just about the watts that he pushed when he was going past us. Me and um, Nick Free were chasing down the quicker swimmers at that point, probably like 7K into the bike. And Mike came past Nick, and I knew that Nick was struggling. The gap opened up pretty quickly. So I went past Nick and said, I've got him, I've got him. And uh, within five seconds of saying that, he was already 100 metres away, and I did not have him. And then I tried to push uh, as hard as I could. So I went around 380 watts for not not long, but um, noticed he was still getting away. (laughs) So... Um, I looked like an idiot, felt like an idiot, and Mike then went past the next guys that we were chasing immediately. Um, Because I was chasing Mike, we did catch that group very quickly. And then I think Mike just settled in from then. He was putting a lot of time into us because as a bike pack that are all good runners, we were fluffing about a lot more than he would have been, so he would have taken advantage of that. And I think our group um, probably thought we could give him a maximum of four minutes um, and it was going out, it was blowing out very quickly. So uh, a few of us started riding a little bit harder on the second lap. Um, but the, yeah, the gap was still opening up. And I don't think his power from what he told me, and I won't share it because I don't know if he's the kind of guy that wants to share it. Um, it's not as impressive as you would have thought for, um, for you know, how big he is and what you would expect the power to look like. I think it's his aerodynamics, which everyone noticed on the weekend and everyone was talking about. For such a big guy to be that aerodynamic, um, he doesn't even have to push um, 400 watts, which we would have all expected him to. It was a high number, um, but it wasn't even, you know, like clearly when he went past us, um, we were pushing higher than he averaged trying to keep up. Um, So he just surged. And then his average wasn't even as much as I expected for his size. So Reedy probably knows about the aerodynamics that he saw out there firsthand. Yeah, I just think Mike was ahead of the game a little bit in terms of the Oceania guys to really get on board with doing the testing. And you just, you notice everything he's chosen is, is pretty strategic. And I'm sure even his, uh, the way he rode that race was very strategic. Like I'm, pr- I'm sure the watts per kilo to go past you guys and get away, it would have been, would have been very high and then he would have, you know, settled into a comfortable, sustainable effort. But yeah, I think it's getting to that point now where you cannot be, um, you can't be behind in the aerodynamics game. Um, There was a time for, you know, in my era, you could still win quite a few races um, without having doing, doing the testing just by getting it sort of close. But I mean, you look at who won on the men's side, uh, Mike's put the time in. I think Grace is sort of ahead of, uh, ahead of the game a little bit in terms of the women, in terms of getting her fit right. Her helmet looked like it sits well, um, you know, and just special mention to everyone who raced. I thought it was just watching it. It was a really cool race to follow. I mean, Grace was very gutsy as always, and she's just getting more and more consistent. It's awesome to see Radka um, just still getting top tier podiums, you know, after having two kids, 
Lottie Williams in third. And, you know, as a coach, Steve, I was super proud of you in your second place. I think um, I was very concerned going in just with it's been a real um, – it's been a pretty tough run for you leading in with sickness. And I know you can't make excuses, but I can. So I was I was expecting uh, <laughs> this to go a bit worse than it did. And, and you know, it, I heard you when you were on the run, you just screamed out expletive mid-run and I just thought – there's something that separates certain uh, athletes from others. And, and I think a lot of that is just how much people can suffer. And we love to talk about the training and the aerodynamics and both you and Mike looked like you were suffering more than anyone else. So that's also a huge part of it. Um, so I've drifted completely away from Mike's aerodynamics. So back, back, back to that. <laughs> Dave, do you want to um, maybe uh, add to that further with your run? Cause it was really, really fast. Um, and maybe just the Geelong race course, because Caleb Noble said afterwards something like, man, Steve can run downhills so well. And I think I even captured a, a video of you at the 10K mark running down a hill and putting gaps into to him and, and Nick Ferry. Yeah, I think when you, when, you run, when you can run downhill on that course without it um, impacting your legs too much, it means that they have to burst for 10 seconds to get back to me. And it just, every single time, it takes a bit out of them. Um, and that was my shoe choice as well. Um, I raced in the ASICs. They are quicker shoes. But on that course, the impact would have been higher. So those guys in Sacconis and ASICs, I felt like me with the Nikes, I went for the low impact shoe, which I've tested recently. And um, I felt like I was just bouncing along down the hills. But the only other thing is I know Geelong's like that. I've raced Geelong many years in a row now. And we've got similar terrain on the Torrens here in Adelaide. So every year, this time of year, I run down hills really fast trying to beat my legs up. And I just feel like I've trained specifically for that course again this year. And that's why it was hard for me to say no to racing it because I got so fit and did so much, um, you know, spikes up and down on the Torrens. Um, they're not big, long hills. They're just spikes, real, real steep, little intense ones, similar to Geelong. So, yeah, just I think it's where I got away from Reedy and Burks in 2021 or whatever year it was that I won. Um, it was down a hill. Um, so, yeah, it's always been a strength. I need, probably just need to pick courses with uh, lots of downhills on the run. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it also shows too, Steve, just how you can perform off the back of sickness um, it's not just about what you've done in that last 12 weeks. It's about what athletes have accrued over five, six, 10 years. And, you know, uh, as a cycling fan too, we've just seen Roglic come off a huge break, a uh, huge break in training due to injury um, and then coming out in some of the best form and surprising everyone. And you see it a lot where pros come off, you know, we talked about it with Terenzo. He would come off a, an injury or something, some sort of setback and six weeks later he'd be astonishingly good and so I think that's a part of it is it's just the work you put in year after year and that's why we're coming to that point now where I think we're going to see just consistent world-class performances even when the prep isn't exactly perfect. Steve there are quite a number of questions that came through with regards to Race Ranger and it's trialing at Geelong. Can you just run us through how it all worked on the day and if it changed any of the race dynamics for you? So Race Ranger, we tested it at Geelong on the weekend, and it you basically see three lights. Uh, red means that you're within 12 metres of the person in front of you. Um, uh, blue means that you're within 
12 to 14, I think. And yellow means you're within 14 to 17 metres. And then no light means that you are um, outside 17 metres. And for me, no light seems like what I was, you know, when, when that orange light just turns off, I'm probably 17 or 18 metres apparently. And that's what I see as where I've normally been riding. Um, so what Race Ranger has done is brought us all a lot closer than we thought. Um, but it still gave me more confidence because there's a few guys in these races lately that are actually sitting three or four metres behind and they're not even in the aero position. So lots of my decisions for this race, knowing that we would be closer and it would be hard to break away because people would be a bit closer. Um, I just chose to wear sleeveless and thought it would be a big pack race and um, didn't want to miss it because I thought the bike might be very easy for me to keep up. Um, turns out, um, with the way I felt, it wasn't actually easy on the swim and bike at all. I was feeling pretty horrible for not great power or anything, but then I came good on the run. But Race Ranger just, yeah, uh, I yeah, I, did, I guess I didn't expect Mike's legs to be that powerful after an Ironman as well, so thought he would be stuck in the pack as well and not be able to get away, but... He's a beast, and it was good for him that Race Ranger was um, in place because, uh, you know, it, people just couldn't stick with him even for um, – I don't if we were three metres behind him, we still couldn't have stuck with Mike anyway. And the, the technical officials did – they said if you saw – it was still self-policing really at this stage. It's just testing it out. So if they saw people coming into the red continually, they weren't going to give a penalty – they were going to see if it stayed red for, you know, 30 seconds or something, and it was blatant cheating. So excuse my ignorance on it, but eventually is the goal that there will be no officials out there calling the shots and a computer just registers this person spent too much time in the bad zone? No, nah, it's still always... Um, still uh, officials. Yeah, okay. officials. That, But they will hopefully eventually have a an iPad or something which says... This guy's gone into it many this many times. This but this guy's been in it for this long, something like that. Then they'll approach that person, they'll find him on course, and they have to catch him out in person. Oh, that's a shame. I think that's the whole defeats a lot of the purpose of having it. So hopefully we can um, get a bit wiser with that and just send it to a computer. And they, you know, maybe they have to sit in. You know, I think we talked about it at the, at the end of the race. They have to do an extra loop or something, the run of shame, and everyone throws <laughs> fruit at them. <laughs> but they've got to come up with something that's completely objective that doesn't rely on human intervention. Yep. And Great. when you say they chase, the officials chase that person down, um, there's an imaginary thing, by the way. You know, it, like that's what they will do. Oh, yeah, right. You're, if they, you're... they don't have an iPad yet to show them who does what it's um it's not yet at that level all it is is a bunch of lights that the officials get to see at so the, the moment problem, the problem being that as soon as you hear a motorbike if they have to catch them in person it's the same problem that we've got now people just exactly yeah you can't have at the moment it's a real shame if the field's really split up there's nothing to police twos and threes that break up because there's normally only one to two officials allocated to a pro field and often mm. only one to the female field so you can't see what three guys are doing two minutes back, and that's what has to be sorted out. And we can't we can't have too many officials on the on the course either. So I'm yeah, sure well, I'm sure the brains behind it are probably pushing for this to go that direction. So I'm not saying anything new. Um, it's just a matter of moving away from what we've um, you know always done and 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 working on a I think really a really new concept. 
I also I, think the self-policing was great. Um, but the one negative is that there's someone at the back. No one can – I can see everyone's lights if I'm second last. But the guy at the back, no one can see his light. So he could still be three metres behind the wheel <laughs> technically if the technical official was not there. But what do they mean by self-policing? Like is someone going to say – Oh, sorry, guys. I draft, and I'm just going to sit, <laughs> sit yeah, two minutes out. Or like, what? I feel like it, it just means everyone you can see out. your light, so, gotcha. um, and if you're coming too close, so you're going to feel a little bit more guilty, which I feel people did. Yeah. But um, yeah, it doesn't mean they're going to come to the front and share the load. It just means that they're going to sit. That did, yeah. Anyway, it's still a, a big issue, but but it was a positive thing, I think overall. There's quite a few questions that came through with regards to your you being sick in the lead up. Um, so people are quite interested to know, you know, that week and that two weeks out when you probably couldn't train the way you wanted to, how you did train and what, what were the kind of things you did to, to get yourself at least ready for the race? Um, well, I wouldn't say I got ready for the race. I'd say, um, yeah, I was... Uh, um, guessing that it was going to go horribly, to be honest. Um, similar to Reedy, but I would—I really wanted to just just to see if I got lucky. Um, but yeah, basically uh, after Victor, I raced that one just getting sick, so I could fit. I knew it was coming on. There was a bit of yellow stuff coming up, and then I was horribly sick with a chest infection. And Reedy said, "All right, this week." So there's two weeks to Geelong at this point, and he said, "This week, nothing over one one hundred beats per minute." So I just did everything, probably halved the volume as well. So I think I only did like a 15-hour training week or something like that. And um, so I still trained every day, but I didn't go over 100 beats um, at all. So I'm running around at like five-minute pace maybe, maybe a bit uh, a bit slower, 5.30 or something, um, half the time. Um, and then, yeah, just riding – Eject very quickly. For most people, I would have said just rest, but I just knew Steve wouldn't do that, so I had to <laughs> create parameters. And I thought, well, this is at least the bare minimum of, of what he'll get. He'll, I can get him to do. <laughs> yeah. so the swing was the hardest because it's a chest infection, so the the lungs can't really. I don't think I can keep my heart rate under 100 whilst swimming because I can't breathe. So that was probably somewhere where I didn't follow the rule, but I tried. Everything was slow and easy, uh, easy. and then just took heaps of this the, the pillar micros that I take. I, I did like maybe four or five times more than I usually do. And um, Reedy didn't want me to go on antibiotics because that was going to make things potentially worse with, um, you know, wanting to race Geelong. But eventually I couldn't avoid it. Um, by the weekend before Geelong, um, I was coughing up liters of yellow and I, I something was wrong with my lungs I could hardly breathe so I just was like right well that's that I went and got antibiotics got on them and you asked about mental health and everything with gut health ready and it was actually all right and I started feeling confident about the race because I could breathe again and um, everything went okay at Geelong and now I feel like I'm in a deep dark depression so these antibiotics are really affecting me now. <laughs> I'm, I'm hating life, I'm hating life. <laughs> I don't know if I'm monotone today because I'm so upset about life I need to get off the antibiotics now are you on your so this is your second course of antibiotics yeah I yeah. think I'm gonna I don't know maybe even get off them um, t- 
today. Oh, I think so. once you start the course, finish the course, or do what the doctor says. Don't. No. <laughs> but um, the the hard part is like we discussed, Steve. Is, yeah, I mean, that does start to really wear down your guts, and um, you, I do notice the other issue besides just starting to feel a bit flat. You know, obviously, a lot of where your serotonin is produced is in your gut, um, and the other is issue for those racing that really worries me is just I've seen it over and over again that people can't absorb calories as well. They can't break down the sugars and seem to struggle with fueling. I've never seen anyone. I could be, I'm happy to be proven wrong and people can send us through if they've done it, but I've never seen someone pull off a good Ironman um, when on antibiotics. And I think that's largely the reason. Yeah, it could have been. I don't know if that is, if the gut health affected, um, me at Geelong but I did actually feel like once I got halfway through that run probably the latest point in the race is where I started feeling good finally so it's a bit weird but I think it wasn't enough to ruin my gut for a four-hour race maybe but yeah as Reedy said it would be for an Ironman it'd probably be almost impossible um, for an Ironman but yeah so yeah I'm depressed (laughs) (laughs) the next question might lean into into this quite well because we do have a serial pest that sends in a lot of dms to the podcast uh, instagram page and his name is dan gilbert here in adelaide and he's finally asked a question that's relevant and it might explain why you're not feeling great and that is why does steve always come second Oh, every, yeah. This <laughs> is making things worse. <laughs> yeah. I'm the worst. I was talking about this with someone else. The, the worst possible place to finish, didn't matter what the race was, was fourth <laughs> because you're just out of sponsored bonuses. Um, I'd almost always preferred fifth place compared to fourth. Give me a second. Like that's not, yeah. you know, it's not too bad. <laughs> but yeah. fourth, you, I used to come home and just, you just look at the bonuses you'd missed out on and what you'd spent on the training camps and you'd be like, ah, oh, this sucks. But yeah. fifth place, I didn't even question it because oh, I wasn't good enough to get the bonuses. <laughs> <laughs> There's been an update to the Peter Bowl situation. Reedy, what can you tell us? Yeah, so Peter Bowl is, um, you know, sort of was the poster boy. I think he was like Australian of the year. Um, fourth place at the Olympics, 800, like exceptional performance at the Olympics, getting a fourth place. And then uh, recently he's tested positive for EPO. Now, in the past, I've been, you know, I've probably been on the more sceptical side of a lot of athletes being guilty when when they get testing positive for substances that are likely to be in tainted supplements, uh, mainly because I've known some of these people personally, and I don't believe ethically they would breach the rules. But regardless of the ethics, I just don't think they're dumb enough to take that substance on a race day when they know they're going to be getting tested. You know, the main thing I'm talking about here from uh, people I know's experience is Osterine, which a few people were getting done for and having to go into legal battles and it ended up being, it ended up being in salt tablets, I believe, but maybe I'm not supposed to share that yet, but there's a lot still legal stuff going on, but you, you have seen it over the years that athletes who are ac- accidentally ingesting uh, things that are banned, especially on race day are getting, you know, getting pretty severe uh, punishments. And yes, I get it. Um, you know, athletes should be, should know what's going into their bodies and all that sort of thing. But we're talking like, you can't even, some countries you got to be really careful, you know, to even 
what meat you eat over there or there's a lot more to it you, you should be able to go to your smoothie shop and get a you know a berry smoothie and not be stressing out on the way home going oh i could be facing a two-year ban if that that's tainted um so my argument's always been that you know we need to be harsher with the penalties on athletes who are clearly cheating and meaning to if we know that someone def definitively was cheating i'd say life ban you know they don't need people go oh, what about a second chance and they'll get a second chance in another job like everyone else they're not going to jail you know so but then so that the substances that really um i looked at one of them being was epo that's not going to be in someone's smoothie by accident right so when peter Boll tested positive for epo first of all i was really disappointed because i'm a bit of a fan and I was like, well, there's no chance that he's innocent. Absolutely no chance. And then it comes out that the, uh, so his, his uh, A sample was sent off to, is it sports? Sent off to Sports Integrity Australia. And they just actually couldn't determine the difference between very high natural levels of EPO and the synthetic EPO. And then raised the alarm that he had tested uh, positive for EPO. And he, you know, the way he came across was like he was in shock <laughs> and you can now see why he was. His B sample didn't test positive. Uh, they then independently tested his samples with uh, more uh, specific experts on the topic and who looked at it and said, yeah, there's, there's no, absolutely no artificial EPO here, no synthetic EPO. And so he's now being cleared, but I think almost to protect themselves, they're saying, oh, there's still an ongoing investigation instead of saying, hey, we really stuffed up here. Um, and the, I just think this sort of, this sort of thing makes you question everything that um, is, is going on. Like we have to, that his name, for example, will always be cast with a little bit of doubt over whether he was actually, whether he was actually a clean athlete or not. Um, I feel like when these things go wrong, these athletes need to be uh, it, it, it just, it just something like this cannot happen. You know, Steve, this would scare the, the hell out of you. Imagine just getting a call one day and someone saying something like that and how hard it would be to come back with the Australian public when it wasn't true. I feel like it was a long enough period that he was under investigation and people suspected it, that he would have lost a lot of sponsors or could have lost a lot of sponsors. It would have been devastating for me at the moment. I need every little bit I can get to keep, um, training full time. If I, if anything came out like that, not that I'm a, as big a name as him, it, it, you'd get dropped straight away quickly for people not wanting to associate with you, or it would cause issues for the next year's signings or whatever. It's a huge issue and it scares the hell out of me. And now I'm, I just, it pissed me off a lot because they rocked up. That for me, I don't know why they rock up at like eight or nine p.m. at night. We go to bed at like eight thirty. As soon as, <laughs> as soon as Winnie gets get, goes to bed at eight thirty, I'm like sprinting to the bedroom hoping she doesn't scream. And it went, they, they even came like on Lauren's due date. We were like desperate to go to sleep and they rocked up at like 9 p.m. We, we were in bed. I know what you're saying, Steve. It can be frustrating. Like, for example, I was always tested at 8 p.m. as well. I sort of just swallowed that um, and just thought that's, that's part of the process. If that's how they have to do it, that's how they have to do it. Obviously, it used to then mean that all my kids were up till, you know, 10 or 11 until I could finally urinate in the bottle, mm -hmm. um, in the cup. And then, so I think, um, I don't actually mind that that much. I mean, as a pro athlete, I think if it is an inconvenience, but it cleans up the sport, that's fine. Even though it, I admit there's times when I was just like, you cannot be serious on the timing. Um, 
But one thing, I, I just back to what I said in that harsher penalties for people who are genuinely cheating, really make sure that before you announce something like Sports Integrity Australia, you got you cannot call someone out for cheating unless you're 100% sure because he may never come back from that. I can guarantee that even though his name is cleared, he still won't get the sponsorship that he could have in the future. And I think, yeah, harsher penalties for real cheats. Let's not punish people who, you know, accidentally eat something in China <laughs> or, you know, like that it's not as definitive. I think, sure, there can be a punishment, but there's just we've just got to separate the two and really... Uh, really dial in on on getting this right because this is uh this is people's lives and not something you can play around with we've got a huge race happening this weekend ironman 70.3 oceanside Brady, why does this race get such big height versus others it's always one of the biggest races of the year I, i'm always a bit surprised that ironman don't make it us champs actually because you've got some of the best guys typically there. Um, it's the biggest, it's one of the biggest races because it's the sort of the season opener for them. It's, uh, I don't know why, but the West Coast races in the US always seem to get more sponsorship love, uh, a little bit more media attention than the East Coast races. Um, so, so it just seems to have a lot of appeal. I know as an athlete, the prize money's good, but it's not that great. Um, you know, I think it's been around the 50K prize pool mark for a long time. Um, you know, I think one year I flew over on the Wednesday, ended up with third, flew home, and I probably broke probably broke even. But the reason it was so valuable to me was because all my sponsors were did really value it. They would be either there, so I'd get to actually hang out with them, um, or watch the, you know, or at least, uh, or at least they would care that it's you know they're putting money towards a race that seems very relevant to them. Um, I do think that you know, given how many top dogs go to this race i'm sure you know some of these guys are getting some good appearance fees i'd love to see prize money bumped up more rather than appearance fees i've always argued for that so that it's more um equitable for everyone but the i think that race does need to go up is it it must have some good good pto ranking points steve is that part of the reason a lot of guys are going there I think so, yeah. It's a big investment to get PTO points. You're spending as much as your bonus at the end of the year will get you. So it's only a silver I mean, race. It's only a silver race, but the strength of field is 84.8, which means you can essentially get a mid-80s score if you win it. Oh, okay. Well, that'll be another factor. And then um, – but I did see Jan Fredino, who's – you know, the one cool thing about that race was, yeah, Jan Fredino would come over to the US um, to normally – kick off his season as well. And it was going to be really interesting to see how he went after quite a big layoff. And unfortunately, word on the street, he's, he's out with influenza. And, um, you, you know, with, um, with Frodo, he's such a professional. He's never going to race slightly sick like Steve. (laughs) 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 No. Yeah. He doesn't need the cash. (laughs) (laughs) You can smell the desperation on me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's a bummer. That's a bummer to see him out. I was looking forward to see whether all our predictions of him coming back to teach everyone he's still the top dog, whether that would come true. Mm. Um, Have you got a piece? Anyone in the field that that you've got your eye on? that you think will be particularly strong. I know I've got a couple of oh, – one person I do, would want to mention before we talk um, our picks is Kat Matthews. Really cool to see her back 
after pretty horrific injuries right before Kona. Um, I think this is her first race back and just an achievement getting back on the start line. Like I think it was she had broken vertebrae and all sorts of horrible injuries. So whether she'll be able to be competitive or not, I'm not sure, but to see her back there is unreal. So um, who do you think, Steve? Anyone you got your eye on for a, mm. let's just talk victories. It might, I don't know. I like to think Jason West might be able to do it because it's a wetsuit swim. So I know he's a little bit slower than, you know, the best swimmer there being Canute. Um, I know that the pack stayed together last year. So he could keep up there with a wetty in the ocean. And then on the bike, if he just keeps it within like four minutes, he's probably running fast enough at the moment that he could run four minutes into most of these blokes. But um, yeah, you've just shown me Danny Leo Berger's there as well. He's yeah, he could be a really good chance. Probably probably him even more so than Jason. Is he pretty good on long hilly courses? I don't know much about him. No, nah, well I don't. Yeah, he would he would have a gap to make up, I reckon. Um, okay. As well. I think he, he won. won fast. He won. He won lands already last yeah, year. It's about as tough a course as they come. So. Yeah, nice. And so I think on the men's side for me, I I think um, I, I think Sam Long and both Lionel are racing. And I actually think those two together is a, is a really good thing because they could potentially come together behind the, the main pack and work together to, um, you know, really put some power down and get back into the race. I think the, they do both ride really well on these sort of long, steady climbs and descents. They're not technical enough to hurt Lionel, but he does have awesome, you know, power to weight up the climbs. So I, I have this feeling I'd love to see Ben Canute do well just because he's a father of two and, always feel for any fathers out there trying to race professionally <laughs> but i reckon um i'm actually going to say it's going to be between sam long and lionel is lionel definitely racing i have uh, yeah i didn't that. see him i don't think he might not be if he is i changed my vote to lionel okay um and yeah i think this course will just be I think it's just a little bit too bike heavy for Jason. I think he's still another mm. probably year away from winning on this style of course. Um, and Jackson Laundry, I know previous winner, but probably hasn't been quite. Um, yeah, I'd just be interested to see if he could get another win there. It'd be amazing. But he he didn't go on to then win another, you know, some other big races. Even though he's consistently right up there these days, so it'd be cool mm. to see him do well. Um, yeah, you could be right, actually, with the bike stuff. I don't know about the women. Maybe Paula, with with your idea on bike being important. Paula yeah, she, she is so strong on the bike. She's. Um, it's hard to know sometimes with Paula because she she does, I think, um, sort of really pick a couple of races each year to really peak for. But for me, my number one pick would be Chelsea Sodaro. I think when she moved to Dan Plews um, and won Hawaii, there wasn't a lot of 70.3 wins that year. I'm not sure if she even really targeted many races. But before that, you know, I remember racing with her in 2019 and a couple. She was, I think she won four or five 70.3s in before COVID kicked off and was really strong. And I think if she wants to just switch back to that sort of racing, I, I think um, combined with her newfound Ironman strength, I think a course like, uh, Oceanside, she'll do really well. So she's my pick for the win. Cool. Makes more sense than my random pool. Danny, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I agree, Chelsea, uh, in the female. And 
I want to say Jason because if if he's within a minute or two, you know, you guys know the rates, the the bike course way better than me. But if he's within a minute, I don't know who in the world right now can run quicker, right? So I guess it all just depends on what happens on the bike there. Yeah, for sure. Is I saw on that list Grace text Grace Tech Grace. <laughs> <laughs> is grace is heading over grace is there for a wedding so she's oh. she's literally flown straight back i think she might live there or her or partner lives there or something or okay. the both mm. of them probably <laughs> and uh and so she's there for a wedding and thought maybe i'll give it a crack if i pull up fresh she said in the pro interview at geelong oh, awesome. mm. i think her partner's from there she lives in melbourne but yeah they go Good. back a lot they've got somewhere to stay i think and there's a wedding that they yeah you're right Go, Grace. Just, she's just on the up and up, so who knows? You might see her on the podium as well. Great. Moving on to some fan questions for this week. We're short and sharp this week with two questions. First one being, what are the easiest bike hacks that can make you ride faster or more efficient without bankrupting yourself? Yeah, it's funny. We get asked a lot of questions on this. It's not a super simple answer because for different people, obviously, what they need to change will be slightly different. But in order of uh, general importance that I would go with is get your position sorted. Um, that's the biggest thing that matters is your your body going into the wind. So talk to a bike fitter who not only fits by, um, road bike riders because there is a big difference, you know, in how to fit a time trialist and there's some excellent fitters out there. Um, just to mention it to you, 3D Bike Fit does a great job. Uh, there's, who else we got? Steve, anyone else to mention? Um, um, we do, we did custom bike fit. Custom bike fit does a good coast. job as well. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just, that's the first place to look and it's not, it isn't cheap, but it's, you, not only is it more aerodynamic once you're sorted, it's uh, you can prevent injuries down the line. You can make cycling far more enjoyable. So position number one, anything that's at the front of your bike or like I'd probably say the front wheel is super important. Um, people love to toss up whether to go between a disc wheel or a deep rear or it really isn't that big a, big a thing, but your front wheel really does matter. So it's not exactly the cheapest thing to up, upgrade, but um, there's certainly some, there's a big difference between, you know, an, a, a really aerodynamic tri-spoke or 80 mil, 90 mil front. Um, but I will say if it means that you are, have so much instability from crosswinds that you're constantly breaking aero, you've got to find your spe sweet spot with that front wheel and what depth you choose. Um, there's, there's a lot to be said for, for, for not going for the most aerodynamically um for the for the wheel that tests most aerodynamic in a wind tunnel often in the real world is not the best choice because of the, those side forces that you can't really um you can't really analyze and check while you're riding you know if you're getting every time you break aero you're, you're losing 50 60 watts and so you've got to find something that's right for you and how comfortable you feel um in in the wind i think helmet is probably the one that's uh people are really waking up to over the last few years is um, every, the problem with helmet choices, is it is super individual. We are seeing more and more that uh, there are helmets that tend to test faster on, on most people than other helmets, but it is an individual one. You can tend to see when the helmet integrates really well with the aero position, if it's going to, if it's going to make a, if it's right for that athlete. And if it doesn't, and it separates the wind from, 
flowing over the head and over the back um or there's a big gap between the tail of the helmet and the back that's that's sort of something you want to avoid um or if you're like me and were never able to ride with your head up then you then you might choose a shorter tail helmet so you can have your head down so helmets massive and then race kit um you see some astronomical numbers out there for the differences between race kits i don't think that's I'm not always sure how much to believe with wind, with some of the data that comes out of um, wind tunnel testing, but certainly there's you know you can be up to ten to fifteen watts between between suits. Um, getting the right uh, fabric on the sleeves um, to help with uh, smoothing, I guess making you yeah all over more aero. Um, it's it can be a big difference. Um, at the same time, I see a lot of people with what would test quite quick in a wind tunnel, a suit that would test quite quickly. I see them coming out of a swim. The sleeves are all wrinkled. They're wet. They're flappy. Um, the collar's blowing in the wind and you're like, you'd be better off just in a sleeveless, you know? So there's a lot to be said about that, that just because what you see, the data you see, it's not necessarily real world. And that's why often, Steve, we've had you just get into a sleeveless and, and um, yeah, if it doesn't. I love that better, word, flappy. Not to interrupt with a laugh. No, Reedy. <laughs> Reedy, on the uh, on the sleeveless and having all your you know, a lot of your body exposed. Um, what about even down to shaving shaving your body? Because I remember when the three of us uh, the night before Husky and I raced Husky last year as well. You were looking me up and down and giving me a funny, strange look I'd never seen before come come from your face, and and I was like, what's wrong? <laughs> You're like, why he's so hairy? <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the easiest ways to be more aerodynamic is get rid of your body hair, like on your legs especially. Um, so I remember Jesse Thomas was doing wind tunnel testing. He went back in for his second round and they were like, we can't work it out. Your data's all way off. You're just literally 12 watts slower no matter what we do. And then they realised that it was because his, his leg hair had grown back for the second round of testing and so once they shaved that off i think it was some crazy number like 10 or 12 watts and i think um yeah you're hairy enough that it mattered and it made me feel sick (laughs) (laughs) that's why i did so bad at husky you you once um you once shaved your eyebrows off (laughs) (laughs) i I remember you clipped your um armpit hair before harvey bay once and i was like what are you doing (laughs) oh if it's non-wetsuit you got to take all the hair off for sure (laughs) (laughs) so you said calf sleeves on the weekend when we were um celebrating second place what um did you do you, have you do you know anything about calf sleeves yet with um, um Sam Laidlow? I, I have seen some people come out um of the winter and their data showed quite a bit quicker with calf sleeves and then others it's not quite the advantage so i think it depends a lot on your lower leg shape um maybe it's partly to do with how it interacts with the bike frame i'm not sure but i think the other side of it is how hot would they make you? So for a race like Kona, you've got to weigh up the heat effect of having something else covering your skin. Um, but I think Sam even mentioned maybe on how they train, how uh, how much of an advantage it was. Um, certainly, yeah, worth considering, if especially if it's a cold race and it's only going to keep you a bit warmer and add aerodynamic efficiency. Mm. I hope so. Uh, what's the... Sorry, you no, go. I was going to make a joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, 
What's the so what's the list in order for what you've mentioned? What is number one, two, three, four, five in best or most position, important? Position front wheel, helmet and rate oh, race kit and helmet would be even. I've got a whole other list of things, but from there tire? it's pretty, You're oh, always on about tire. Yeah, your front wheel and tire interaction is super important. So you can't have a tire that's a lot wider than your rim width. Um, so yeah, tire in general, most of the tires don't make it as long as the tire interacts pretty well with the uh, with the wheel. It's not going to massively affect the aerodynamics, but it will massively affect the rolling resistance depending on what rubber you decide to use. So that's 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 a factor, but. Um, don't know if I'd uh, for most people now they're not riding super slow tires like in the past there used to be a range of uh an, an enormous range but all the companies are getting pretty pretty clued in on um making sure the tires roll pretty well not all of them but you know I don't see it the same I don't see people lining up with gator skins like I used to yeah. <laughs> last question if you live at sea level and want to race at altitude what would be the ideal protocol in terms of preparation Steve, we've done this a couple of times. I don't know if it's it's always been hard with you being a bit more time limited. The, the best possible protocol is get up, spend as much time as you can at altitude. Um, realistically, for most amateurs and even a lot of travelling pros, that's not possible. So the sweet I've found after about three or three weeks at, at altitude, um, I can I, I race really well. Um, Ten days, I can sort of pull it out. Any time between sort of four to 10 days, I'm really sluggish and find it really hard if I've gone to altitude. And I almost think it's better to just go straight there and race within two days of getting there. Um, and that's that's been, I don't know how well proven it is, but I've heard that from a lot of people. If you're going to altitude and you don't have time to acclimatize, don't go there for four days. Just go there, race and leave. But yeah, ideally, ideally, as long as you can before the race, which is why it's, you know, so often you see the guys that are just based there for the whole of summer. They tend to have their best seasons doing that. Um, does that answer the question without going too long? <laughs> yeah, you could do heat prep, I guess, but it's um, it's a risk if you don't know exactly what you're doing. And even for someone who knows what they're doing, you could still, I don't know, I get a sniffle at like the slightest sign of a cold coming on and I just cool quits on on the heat prep and I just stick to training so it sucks like yeah being around a young uh, child that goes to childcare and whatever um I find the heat prep too risky sometimes so I'm not doing it all the time and and then altitude there's just too much on in life to um disappear too often um without you know giving Lauren help at home and whatever so I won't be doing altitude Thank you.